Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 29 being recorded on Thursday, May 26th. 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. How are things in Chicago? They are wonderful. We're right before Memorial Day weekend here. Yeah, yeah. We're going to go to the beach and get our uh, first sunburn of the season. What are you guys up to? The weatherman tells me that we are not going to get a sunburn. I have my mother visiting me to hang out with our nine-month-old son. Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah, totally looking forward to it. Also known as free babysitting. Well, let, let's jump into it. As we mentioned earlier in the week, uh, we were at Shop Talk, and I gave a panel called Brands Taking Control, and really excited to have one of the panelists here with us tonight, Amanda Greenberg. She's perfect to help us understand this general topic of brands going direct and, and how do these branded manufacturers think about e-commerce, because she's the Senior Director of E-Commerce at Farrar Candy, and before that, she ran e-commerce for Kind. She also worked for Philips and, and Crosal, a home furnishing company in e-commerce. So she's essentially an e-commerce ninja that brands bring in to help figure out e-commerce, both the strategy and to go implement it. Wow, Scott, that's excellent. I think that's our first ninja on the show. Welcome, Amanda. Hi, guys. I'm, I'm kind of uh, flattered to be called a ninja. Yeah, it's kind of like a Six Sigma thing. You're kind of an e-commerce ninja. You repel in from the ceiling, stealth-like, and implement strategies before they realize what's going on. I love that. I love that reference. I actually, um, I'm lean certified. So um, Six Sigma and lean are close to my heart, but uh, e-commerce is closer. Cool. Coincidentally, Ferrara candy is close to Scott and I's heart. Yeah. I'll send you guys some samples after this. What's your favorite Ferrara candy? Mine? Yeah. Um, I would say the Stonyfield organic uh, fruit snacks are my favorite. Mm. I'm a Lemonhead fan. Love the Lemonheads, especially the big, giant ones. How about you, Jason? So I personally have not met a Ferrara candy that I don't like, uh, but I'd have to go with the classics, the now and laters. Oh, those are great. Yeah, I can remember as a teenager having those when I had braces, and they ripped literally all my braces out, so they were not popular with my orthodontist. They were financially very popular with your orthodontist. Yeah, yeah, I guess. He has the fancy tires on the Porsche, thanks to those things. <laughs> Amanda, start off by giving us a little bit of your background and how did you how did you get into the wonderful world of, of doing this kind of thing for brands? Um, where'd you go to school? Uh, were you classically trained in being a ninja? That you know, We'd love to hear a little bit of background before we jump into some of the, the, the big topics that brands are facing. So no, I, I wasn't a nat, uh, naturally changed, uh, trained ninja. Um, but I've I've loved e-commerce for a long time. So I went to George Washington University fully anticipating that I was going to go into politics. I actually interned for Senator Chris Dodd of Connecticut. He's a Demo he was a Democrat out of uh, the Senate and um, became slightly disillusioned with natural uh, national politics and uh, fell into business. And I applied um, to JD MBA programs and my father uh, graciously told me not to go to get my law degree, and I focused on business. And what I really love about e-commerce is that it's an al amalgamation of all parts of the business world. So marketing, strategy, sales, 
uh, supply chain, just everything that you can think of in business, finance, is part of e-commerce. And the general management aspect of it is what I really love. So I've been involved in various parts of business for my career, but what I love the most has always been e-commerce. So you like that kind of where you're the Swiss Army knife versus the, you know, the surgical scalpel where you have just very, you know, a very kind of specific thing that you do. Yeah. And and the other thing that I love about e-commerce so much is that it's constantly evolving. The way that Amazon operates today is not what it the way it operated a year or two ago. Um, Jet.com barely existed a year ago. So it's a constantly changing environment. And that's so fascinating to me. And I love the fast pace of it. I would also venture to say if uh, your experience is anything like mine, your politics background probably uh, helps you quite a bit in some of the corporate cultures. Uh, You would be surprised. So in some ways it doesn't, in some ways it doesn't. I I consider, I don't know whether this is appropriate to say on this podcast, but I consider myself a little like Joe Biden. I have a hard time keeping my mouth shut when I have an opinion. Those are exactly the guests we want on the show. (laughs) Yeah, it makes for good radio. Any anything else? So um, you've been at several companies um, through there. Any kind of commonalities or differences that are interesting? I, I think the biggest thing is if you can connect yourself to who the consumer is, even if you're not the traditional consumer of the product, you can get inside the head of that person and then figure out the best way to proceed. Um, that's how I approach it. So. I may not have been the consumer of Philips Avent products when I was at Philips because I'm not a mother. Um, I'm not traditionally a, a very big candy consumer, but I understand who the consumers are in both of those segments. And, and to me, that's the important thing. So it's, a, it's the ability to connect the consumer to the product and really think about that strategically and get into their shoes. And in that way, I would equate it to very similar to politics. It's how do you connect what the what the consumer or the constituent wants with what you're trying to sell? Hmm. Never thought of that. That totally makes sense. One of the things that's interesting to me about your background is you've been in the home industry, you've been in the consumer electronics industry, and what I'll broadly call the CPG to include food um, industries. And and what jumps to mind immediately to me about those three industries are that consumer electronics is it was sort of a early adopter of e-commerce. They're kind of a digitally mature market, and home is sort of in between. And a lot of the food and CPG companies are are sort of new to e-commerce and you know are still kind of getting their their digital legs under them. And so it seems like you've had experience ac- across a broad range of maturities of industries. Does, is, is that how it felt to you? Yeah, I mean, I guess going back to what I what I had said previously is, is if you can put your yourself in the shoes of the consumer, I think you can connect yourself back to how do you sell the product? Um, when I was in home, it was 10 years ago and or almost 10 years ago now. And um, selling bedding online is very difficult. So people want to touch and feel their bedding. They want to understand exactly what size it's going to be and how it's going to fit on their bed. So it actually was a fairly uphill journey. And not to mention the fact that it was almost 10 years ago. So um, people really didn't understand e-commerce in the way that they do today. Electronics, for sure, was a much more mature market. But then there, the challenge, at least uh, on the Philips Avent side, was 
mother child care is an evergreen consumer. So you're constantly trying to get someone into your brand and you have their audience for maybe two years before they exit out of that, uh, uh, that market. And then on the Philips Sonicare side, the other brand, big brand that I worked on, uh, there was about 30, 25 to 30% penetration. So you had 65, 70% of the consumer base that was still using a manual toothbrush. And the, to get someone into an electric toothbrush category, it's a difference between spending three to five dollars and spending a hundred to a hundred and ninety dollars on a on an electric toothbrush. So that was a big jump. So each of them had their own individual challenges, and food for sure, I agree with you, is is still on the precipice. From an e-commerce standpoint at Kind, we were actually fairly mature. Uh, granola bars and, and um, nutrition bars in general are very shippable. They're fairly lightweight. They're fairly compact. Um, so it was a, it's a much easier buying decision for the consumer, and it's a much easier sell for the, for the um, retailer to ship. On the confection side, it's the, the big challenge that we're facing, that I'm facing, is it's much more of an impulse purchase. And so the big challenge that ultimately I will have is how do we overcome that impulse? But those are, those are the kinds of challenges that make it fun. Awesome. Um, one one kind of question, kind of on that, is when when these brands bring you in, you're kind of seems like they're at different phases of their life cycle, and in the retail adoption of, of digital and e commerce, we've seen it kind of go from you know kind of the, the early two thousands. It was kind of like, well, it's kind of a it was a hobby, right? So you you had to do e commerce because you weren't sure, so maybe you outsourced it, and then in the mid two thousands, everyone got more serious about it. Um, but it was kind of still this different part of the org. And then now in most retailers, it's become this omni-channel, totally integrated. Jason and I have talked a lot on the show about the digital people are kind of taking over. So now you've got this chief digital officer taking over for the CMO kind of a thing. And, and the whole org is kind of becoming digital. How, how do you how do you take that? Do you think that model happens in brands and, and have you kind of seen that over your career or is it going to be kind of a different thing? Do brands maybe not go that far? I think it really depends on the company and how seriously they take it. Uh, I think it's a very big mountain to, to climb and there's a lot of very traditional people out there. I'm very lucky that I work for an organization that while they have not been in e-commerce or digital for very long, they're taking it very seriously um, and Ferrara really wants to move quickly into the space. So they are putting the resources and the time and the energy behind it in a big way. I think um, ultimately it depends on the organization and also where the trend takes it. I think that um, the the big challenge, and, and I'd love to get your guys' opinion on this, uh, because this is one of, from a from an organizational standpoint, this is the big quandary that CPG people tend to have is, does, does digital end up sinking into brand or does brand end up sinking into digital? Because uh, digital is pervasive in every part of marketing at this point, and e-commerce is pervasive in every part of sales. And yet it seems as though there are still specialists. So at what point does it get absorbed and in which direction does it get absorbed? And I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Jason, you want to take that one? 
Yeah. I think of these digital specialties that we have right now as very tertiary positions, right? And I'm I'm saying this about my own career. We're in a transitional time where digital dis- is disrupting everyone, and there's lots of legacy employees that know their businesses really well, but you know maybe haven't had deep exposure to digital. And so the, those companies need to augment their traditional skill sets with these new digital skill sets. So yeah, you hire some digitally savvy employees, or maybe you even appoint a chief digital officer to sort of um, help help uh, shepherd digital into your organization. Or, you know, my favorite solution is to go hire some big, expensive digital consultants like me um, to, to come in and help augment your skill set. But in the long run, I think that all of us are going to have digital skills as a core part of our job. And to your point, like digital just is going to be a fundamental part of branding and everyone that's good at branding will understand the digital components. And there won't be the need for this standalone specialty. And so the the joke I, I like to tell is back in the 1920s when all the factories were transitioning from steam power to electricity. For the first time, they could plug the factory into the electricity to run their machinery. A lot of factories hired this chief electricity officer, and that was a super important job to help that factory transition from the in-house steam plant to the electricity on the grid. But you're very unlikely to find a chief electricity officer today because that's just a fundamental part of everyone's skill set. Yeah, my my take is when when I talk to brands, they have various reasons why they've prioritized digital. Um, And I'd almost turn it back on you. And and when I've talked to brands, there's, there's a number of reasons. They tend to fall into two camps. One of them is... They're very keenly kind of aware of their consumer and they're, they're trying to realign with them or, or they've lost a consumer. And as they research, they realize that consumer kind of went digital and they weren't there kind of a thing. Um, that, that's one kind of bucket of answers I generally get. The other one is usually, um, for more traditional companies like, like some of the, your last two that are CPG, uh, they see it happening. They, they've got this channel layer between them and the customer and they either are worried about the channel, um, or not getting digital fast enough and they feel like they have to compensate or the channel is kind of pulling them and saying, Hey, you guys need to, you know, do more and, and kind of support us more in this digital thing. So, so I'm kind of curious what, what's going on to, to drive that at your organization. Yeah. I think the big thing at, at Ferrara has been, we've had an opportunity to um, get serious about e-commerce sales uh, there's really not anyone in the candy industry who has done it very well thus far. Um, and so we have a real opportunity to get ahead in a, in a bigger way. So I, many people, I'm sure, have not heard of Ferrara, but we're actually the the third largest manufacturer of candy in the United States behind uh, Hershey's and Mars. So um, and in fact, we co-manufacture for a lot of for both of them and also for a lot of other candy manufacturers as well. So we're we're producing a lot of candy out there and we've moved into some of the better few space but i think ultimately um with the vision of our evp of sales john levin and uh, our ceo um todd Siwak, they they both felt like this was a place that we needed to be um to uh move forward and to be a leader in the market um and as as i've been meeting with e-commerce customers over the past month or so We've, I've heard over and over again that they're so glad that we're taking this seriously because they've needed someone in this space. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. One of the questions I was curious about is 
One of the things digital does for a lot of companies is, particularly manufacturers, is it's the first time that they feel like they have an avenue to sell direct to consumers. And so, you know, you'll, a lot of people that were manufacturers that traditionally sold through retail, only through wholesalers, will launch their own direct to consumer e-commerce site. I don't think that's the case at Ferrara yet. Is it, do I have that right? Like you guys aren't selling direct online? That is correct. We don't have that. That is something that we've talked about. Uh, and it's an interesting proposition. So at Philips, we had it. At Kind, we had it. Um, I've managed direct-to-consumer websites. At, um, I did not manage Philips. I managed CrowSales, and I also managed Kind. And uh, it's an interesting business. It's a tough business because, in my opinion, it defies the shopping behavior of the average consumer. So there really has to be a reason why the consumer is going to have that direct impact. It tends to be a very high cost per acquisition. Uh, It tends to um, be difficult to gain real traction, particularly when you have high ACV or high distribution in stores or online for that matter on on channels like Amazon or Walmart.com or any of the big uh, e-commerce retailers. But there are reasons to do it. And so the reasons to do it, in my opinion, are for data, because there's very rich data that you can get through the direct-to-consumer link to to work with your consumer and to have that direct link to them so that you can get their feedback is a big reason to have that that direct uh, link as well. And then also breadth of assortment um, and testing. So there are lots of reasons to have a direct-to-consumer website, and it is something that we've been discussing, but it's not something that we've activated yet. What You mentioned data. What's some of the data that would be kind of interesting to you as, as a brand? Is it conversion rate or top sellers? What What is it that's that you would find that you would immediately dig into when you started getting that data? I think one of the biggest things to me that's interesting is device usage and how they're shopping, Um, whether they're fluctuating between devices and how they're fluctuating between devices, also what pages they're looking at. So some of the reason to have a direct-to-consumer website isn't necessarily for the purchase, but also finding out where they're finding information um, and then how they're acting upon that information. Um, I also think the conversion rate is interesting, but a conversion rate on a branded website is always going to be lower than a retailer website. So I I don't know that you're comparing apples to apples, but all of the information, which products are purchased at the highest rate. So if you see um, a product that is purchased at a very high rate that has a very low distribution, either online or in retail brick and mortar, then perhaps that's something you can leverage with other retailers to gain distribution points. Uh, all of those, all of those various things are interesting. Yep, and I, I would just pile on getting the opportunity to work with a lot of multi-branded retailers and with branded manufacturers. The retailers are not really good at sharing data with the the manufacturers yet. So they tend to share some very limited sales data. In many cases, they only share that data if the brands pay. And to my knowledge, none of the big retailers share this really granular data that's super useful to the brands like search behavior. So when people are finding your products, are they searching for the brand names of your products? And what's the conversion rate when they do that? Are they searching for a flavor profile? Are people typing sour or tart? And is that taking them to your products? And is that having a better or worse conversion rate? Are they misspelling some of your brands? And, you know, all all of those sorts of 
interesting behaviors that retailers get to observe and then change their experiences to accommodate, retailers aren't really good yet at, at making that data available back to their brand partners to help the, their brand partners improve their content. Yeah, and I would add, I would add also onto that um, is when you have a, a, a house of brands like um, Ferrara, like Kimberly Clark, like Unilever, any of these companies who um, have a very have a fairly large portfolio, but none of the brands ladder back to that master brand. Uh, it, it is very helpful for discovery as well. Uh, and I think that's an interesting piece of it, too. Absolutely. One clear kind of channel conflict is, hey, you're the brand and you start selling direct. And you mentioned, you know, Philips did that and, and uh, Kind did that. And so you have these age old arguments. Am I going to irritate my wholesale channel and am I going to create this channel conflict? And is Walmart going to buy less from me because I do that and punish me and and blah, blah, blah. But there's this other kind of channel conflict that I suspect might be closer to home at Ferrara. Well, you've chosen not to sell direct. Have you chosen to sell to some new online-only retailers, i.e. Amazon, for example? And did you have those same kind of, were you around when they made that decision? And and did they have those same kind of conversations are Walmart and Target going to be angry at us for selling through Amazon, for example, or Jet? It's an interesting question. I guess that remains to be seen. We are are going to partner with um, traditional, actually, I shouldn't say traditional, but uh, I, I kind of think as Amazon is a traditional e-commerce retailer at this point, um, with, with some of the e-commerce retailers that are online only, uh, including both Amazon and Jed, and we're excited about those partnerships. We're also ex- equally excited about partnerships with Walmart.com and Target.com and any of the other retailers that have an e-commerce presence. So part of my job is to specifically work with the brick-and-click retailers. Uh, so you can think of Ahold with uh, Stop and Shop and Peapod. Um, you can think about uh, Walmart.com or Target.com. Kroger recently, um, within the past year or so, uh, acquired Vitacost.com. It's another retailer that we'll probably work with. So we will be working with most of the e-commerce retailers out there, uh, and and I'm excited about all of them. The fact is, is that the broader distribution we have, the better all retailers do. So uh, ultimately, as I say to everyone in my organization who's concerned about e-commerce, I don't believe e-commerce is a price disruptor, which is usually the biggest risk within channel conflict. I view it as a very large mirror that if there's a pricing issue in the market, it will hold that mirror up to it and it will shine a light on it. But it's not going to be the reason that there was a channel conflict. Very interesting. And it sounds like this is clearly the case at Ferrara, but like just, just to clarify for our listeners, it's funny. When you talk to a, someone in consumer electronics or apparel and you say, I have an e-commerce role, you're almost certainly talking about someone whose main job is to sell direct-to-consumer via an e-commerce site. But when you talk to someone in food or CPG that's in an e-commerce role like you're in now, the your primary job is really to make those products, that digital shelf at all your wholesale partners more successful and for you to sell stuff more successfully through Walmart.com and Target.com and Peapod and Amazon. Do I do I have that right? 
Uh, I think it's both. So at Kind, I had both pieces. At Phillips, I was I had a number of different roles. But when I was in e-commerce for them, I was focusing on the marketing revolving around uh, the e-commerce retailers. And at Crowsill, it was both pieces as well. So I think ultimately at Ferrar, it will be both pieces, um, both the direct-to-consumer and the wholesaler piece. Although as e-commerce is a new initiative starting a month ago, the focus right now is on e-commerce wholesale. And that includes both uh, omni-channel, brick-and-click, and pure play. Cool. You, you mentioned kind of this mirror and, and it holds it up. Um, kind of talking generally about brands, one of, one of the things we find is um, these brands will come and they'll say, we want to go direct to consumer and we're going to set up a website and they do. And then they're always surprised when they don't sell a lot on their website because uh, of this minimum advertised price kind of challenge the industry has. So, so they'll be out there and, and they want all their retailers to sell something at one ninety nine or whatever it is, if it's electronics or something. Um, and then they, they adhere to that on their website, but then all their retailers are selling it for like one thirty nine. Um, just generally, and, and you don't, you know, I don't want any specifics about companies, but just kind of, I'm sure you get asked this a lot. Uh, What's your philosophy on on that, both both on map pricing and and is it effective? And then also just pricing in general as a brand when you have this kind of, um, you know, you're selling things direct maybe, um, and then you have this channel kind of out there selling it too. So pricing in general, I think, is very tough. There's lots of different pieces that go into it. Map pricing is effective if you are operating in an industry where that's typical. So when I was in the electronics space, it was very typical and it was very effective, but it was only effective because we had teeth to our map policy. So if someone didn't abide by that policy, we would either, there were three, it was a three strikes policy. So first one was a warning. Second, we would stop shipping them for, I think a month. And then the final one was we would stop shipping them permanently on that specific skew. And because we had teeth to the policy, it did work. In the food space, it's not common to have map pricing. So it is common to have what they call an SRP or a suggested retail price, but no one necessarily abides by that. And they don't have channel strategy the way they do in in the durable space where they have specific periods of time earmarked for promotions. So you end up having promotions at all different points in the year, which leads to price disruption in the market, especially when you layer e-commerce in. Um, But ultimately, I think the reason people don't go to, to, the reason people don't go to branded websites to purchase, I believe is because it defies consumer behavior. It's so easy to shop on Amazon or to shop on walmart.com or one of their apps, or to shop on diapers.com, or quidzy, uh, or soap.com, or target.com, or any of these apps that we have on our on our smartphone, that's an easy thing to do. To go onto someone's mobile website, there has to be a reason. And so whenever I go into a, a new position, my question is always why? Why do you want to have this as, why do you want to have a direct-to-consumer website? Because if you can answer the question why, and your answer is, I want the data, or I want the the direct con, uh, the direct consumer impact, and I want that that relationship experience. I want the loyalty, and I want to be able to control that experience for the consumer. All of those things are really good. But then the subsequent question is, 
what is the what does the consumer get out of it? So one of my favorite examples is Kiehl's. Every time you order off of the Kiehl's website, which is a L'Oreal company, you get a free sample or I think multiple free samples of other products that you can try. So the consumer benefit is they get free samples. The benefit to L'Oreal or Kiehl's is that they get all of this data and there's a reason. Also, Kiehl's isn't the easiest brand to find in brick and mortar or even online for that matter. So that's a a win-win for everyone. The best branded website that I've seen is Nest. Um, I think they do a great job of of explaining their product, which is a smart uh, home product. But when you get into the food space, there's not that much to explain. And so... Um, the idea of replicating a nest for uh, Ferrara candy is just not even close to being achievable. Mm-hmm. How, how do you feel? Um, I don't know if you had a chance to see them at Shop Talk, but one of these new brands, you know, there haven't been a ton of CPG brands born. Um, you know, you're working for kind of one that's that's been around for a very long time. Uh, the Honest Company, I thought. It was interesting at Shop Talk. You know, here you have this multi-brand kind of consumer CPG company kind of came out of nowhere. It's got a celebrity angle too, which I think a lot of people poo-pooed at first. Um, what do you think about their strategy of really? You know, they they they're very very specific about how they price things and where they sell them and, and that kind of thing. I was uh, so the CEO's name is Brian Lee, correct? Yeah, mm-hmm. I was very impressed by him. I actually did sit through um, his talk. And I was really impressed by his singular focus on the consumer. One of the things that resonated the most to me, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, on both of your thoughts on this, was his idea that he was able to see the everyday man or the everyday woman, for that matter, the everyday person, and that he was able to figure out what would resonate. The other thing that really struck me, so having come from the mother child care space with Phillips Avent, the biggest challenge is it's constantly a new consumer. It's what we call an evergreen consumer. That consumer comes in and they exit within X number of years because there's ages, age and stage to their baby and their and their own development um, as a pregnant lady and then subsequently with their kid. Um, and, and Jason, I think you have a young child as well. So uh, the, I'm, I'm a big Avent customer right now, in fact. Are you? Okay, so... The, the thing that shocked me was he sort of flipped that idea on its head because to me, that's that's a barrier. But the way he said it, it was an opportunity. And I, I was really I was impressed by that. He said um, that that the, the mother, cons- the, the consumer who's a mother is willing to spend anything to make sure that both she and her child are taken care of. And I, that fascinated me to, to flip that on its head. Very cool. The. um so, so you, you've kind of mentioned it a couple times. The it wouldn't be a good Jason and Scott show without talking about Amazon. So, when, when I've talked to a number of brands, the, the funny one I was talking to someone in the UK, and he kind of in that classic dry UK humor said, "You know, Scott, I have a love hate 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 relationship with Amazon." And um, digging in, you know what what brands love about Amazon is the distribution. You know, with over you know close to 300 million consumers and uh you know well over you know around 200 billion of GMV globally what's not to love about a channel partner like that but what i found a lot of brands worry about is uh it it's growing so fast and uh becoming you know a large part of their growth and their company. So that's a little scary. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, like anyone, Amazon can be tough to negotiate. They may not take all your selection. Um, a lot of these folks that are really obsessed with map pricing, it frustrates them because Amazon 
is very robotic in changing the pricing if they see it lower anywhere else on the internet. And a lot of brands spend a lot of time trying to figure out who who started the cycle of lowering prices and the race to the bottom and all that. What what's your advice? Um, you know, so let's say a you know a, a, a brand came to you and said, "Hey, Amanda, what? How should we approach Amazon and, and deal with it? What kind of advice do you give to folks?" So I have a love, love, love relationship with Amazon, uh, and I I enjoy working with them so much. Um, maybe I've just had extremely positive experiences in all of my times working with them, but I've had some great vendor managers. I've had some amazing DMMs and, and VPs as well, and I find them to be an extraordinarily collaborative partner. Um I, I just, I can't even say how many good things, uh, enough good things about working with them. But my advice to people is be really open-minded when working with them. Give them all of their ideas. Uh, I was joking. So I, when we were at um, Sweets and Snacks earlier this week, I, I saw an old coworker of mine from Kind. And he was joking with me that uh, they rec- that his new company um, had recently sampled in one of Amazon's sample boxes. So they have this new sample box, which is really cool, where the consumer can buy it, I think, for 10 or $15, and there's it includes all these samples. And if they buy anything in, in the box, they actually get a 10 or 50 whatever they're whatever they're putting forward as the, as the investment, they're getting that in credit so that they can buy something from that box. And hopefully the idea is, is that they'll get someone into a consumable category where they'll continue to consume that product. And that was the brain. That was part of the brainstorm that we had done when I was at Kind, and it was one of the ideas that we had come up with. And uh, my friend, uh, who who works for um, a, a beef jerky company, had said, "I can't believe they took that idea, and, and we just participated in it." And that's the sort of thing that Amazon. They, it's not that they took it; it's that they recognized it was a great idea and they implemented it. And so, I my advice would be. Anytime there's an, there's a great idea, they should go forward and, and ask Amazon to a partner with them on it and b implement it. And Amazon is open to those sorts of ideas, which I think is so amazing from a partnership standpoint. I also think that um, the biggest risk is when someone is from the brick and mortar world and they expect Amazon to act like they're from brick and mortar, they're going to be disappointed. They're going to find fault with Amazon. When you take it from a fresh perspective where you say Amazon is innovative and spectacular at what they do and they can't be compared to brick and mortar, there will be no disappointment. They'll be very straightforward about their business model. They don't price degrade, they price match. And every single time that I've looked at a price decrease that someone has said Amazon led, it wasn't Amazon, it was someone else. Um, so I, I love working with them. I think they're a great partner and I think they have so much innovation and, um, I, I truly believe that, uh, and, and I think this is unfortunate because two years ago I made a different pro- projection and I'll tell you what that was, but I truly believe Amazon is going to get brick and click right before Walmart or Target does. Um, and so two years ago I said Walmart was going to get it right first, but I don't think that's the case. I think Amazon's going to get it right first. Well, two two quick things on this topic. Number one, uh, I learn something new about Amazon every day, and you are blown my mind with this sample boxing. I did not know about this. Jason, did you know about this? I have heard about the sample box, but Amanda's the first person I've talked to that has some firsthand experience with it, so I'm fascinated. 
Yeah, so if you go to Amazon.com slash sample dash boxes, B-O-X-E-S, uh, it looks like they have four right now. And what they do is you buy these things and you get a credit. So it seems like a no-brainer to me. And right now they're doing a lot of beauty products, it looks like. Um, so pretty interesting. I, I had never known of that, and I, I could see why a brand would love that. It's a you know a, a great way of kind of getting that sample in the hand of the consumer. And um, and I assume Amazon takes care of all the logistics and everything. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, it is. So you provide them with the product and also the funding as always. And, and they handle the um, putting the box together and getting it sent out. And just to give my friend some credit, uh, his name is Ben Garnero and he's with um, Chef's Cut uh, Beef Jerky. Neat. That's a great idea. Um, and then the other one is we're, we're seeing, um, this is more in apparel, so you may not have encountered this. Um, one of the things that frustrates apparel brands is Amazon doesn't take their whole selection. So um, kind of the classic example is Under Armour. When when they were first um, on the scene, they were really well known for their dry fit shirt, but not some of the other sports they wanted to get into. Um, so they, they opened up a third-party store, and they kind of did what I would call hybrid, meaning they were both kind of first-party traditional wholesale retail with Amazon, and they were also on the marketplace. Um, what do you think about that strategy? Does that make sense to you or is it crazy or, or have you had any exposure to that? I don't have a lot of experience with third party. All of uh, my experience with Amazon has been first party and they've taken everything I've asked them to. Yeah. Okay, cool. One other Amazon question. A, you've provided somewhat of a fresh perspective, which is great because to be honest, we, we talk to a lot of folks that are more leery of the potential downsides of Amazon. So it's great to hear your perspective, taking Amazon specifically aside, folks in your in your industry have seems like they've always had concern about one retailer having too much leverage and power over the market in general. And so, you know, for the last decade or so, that's been Walmart, you know, that dictated a lot of pricing and literally changed people's products lines based on what they carry and what they wouldn't carry and dictated their shopper marketing based on what programs they liked and didn't like. And now it seems like Amazon getting half of all the growth in retail in the last quarter, that they're sort of taking on that role, at least for a lot of newer products. Do you have any concerns? It sounds like Amazon's been a great partner to you, but do you have any concerns about them having too much control of the market? And, you know, so are, are you, it, it, it sounded like you're also very actively exploring all of the, the Amazon alternatives in the food space, the jets and the peapods and the holds and all that stuff. I think anytime there's a, a big retailer out there who's, who understands the market better than others. And in addition to Walmart, I would add Costco to that. Uh, and, and some uh, Kroger from a grocery standpoint, Walgreens from a drug standpoint, there are these dominant partners in each space who really understand retail and get it better than anyone else. One of the initiatives that I led at Kind uh, while I was after my first year there was to decrease dependence on Amazon. And and what I would say about that is it's not about slowing down growth at Amazon. It's about accelerating growth with alternative platforms. And so ultimately, you don't want to be tied into any specific retailer with 85% of, of the channel going through one player. But the reality is, is that often happens. So when you look at, let's take the club channel, for example, Costco, BJ's, Sam's, the majority of, of sales go through Costco because it just happens to be bigger. And I would say it's the same thing in, in e-commerce. Amazon happens to be the biggest player, but 
there are other players in the space that have that are ripe for innovation. And I think that's where brands can play a huge role in advancing those players so that you're not decreasing the amount of acceleration that Amazon has, but you're decreasing the dependence by growing others faster. That makes perfect sense. I wanted to take an opportunity to sort of transition us to the future and where we think all this is going. And and I have a, a couple specific questions. You mentioned at the top of the show that a big part of your current product catalog is impulse purchase. And I think a lot of us are nervous slash curious about what the digital version of impulse will look like. Because I, I sort of look at the marketplace right now and I say, gosh, as more consumers transition from shopping at Kroger and Target to shopping on Fresh Direct or Peapod or Amazon Subscribe and Save, what what happens a lot is you see a lot of list reordering and they build a list and they reorder that list over and over again. So they, they don't get that opportunity to add those impulse items. They don't get the serendipitous discovery as they walk through the candy aisle to get to cash wrap. And then even in the stores, the interesting thing is you have a lot of products that are merchandised at the cash wrap. And traditionally in retail, those cash wraps have been the, the highest revenue per square foot part of the whole store. But now you watch customers standing in line waiting to pay at the cash register and they're all heads down on their mobile phone catching up on Facebook and it, it seems less likely that they're even noticing the red hots. And so I wonder, do you have any thoughts about what the digital equivalent of impulse might be? Am I overreacting and, and impulse is going to be just fine? Is you know is someone going to invent some cool new version of impulse, maybe something like the sampling box we were talking about in Amazon? I'm, I'm hoping you're going to invent something. I would love to. I'm trying. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's, there's two things there. The first is, is that I, I do think in-store impulse is a lot easier. So one of the best retailers for impulse, and, and I'm assuming that neither one of you has shopped there, except potentially with significant others, is Sephora, where you have to wind down. As you go to the cash register, you have to wind down this little uh, tunnel of products. Uh, and, and each of them looks so exciting as you're walking down this aisle. You end up buying like $80 more than you anticipated. By the way, it's adorable that you think the retail geek hasn't shopped in Sephora. Oh, okay. So you have. So you understand exactly what I'm saying. I have spent the night in Sephora. <laughs> so you have an appreciation for it as much as I, I We just need to get them to sell candy in that little uh, maze. Yes. Yes. The, there are not a lot of man impulse items in Sephora, I will say. No, there are not. Um, so that's one thing. The, the second thing is, I think, so one of the things that during this brainstorm that we had with Amazon and uh, Kind about a year ago um, was talking about impulse and how do we get consumers to activate. And, and Pantry has a very interesting uh, opportunity in that realm. So as you build your box and it tells you you're 75% full and you need to have 25% filled and you don't know what else to put in, that's kind of the opportunity for the impulse purchase where you can say, this bag of trolley gummies will fill 3% of your box or this box of wrap uh, protein gummies um, as a substitute for a protein bar will fill 14% of your box and get you almost to closure. I think that's where impulse comes into play. And I see that replicating itself out in the market in different ways. But I, I wonder um, I wonder how else that can be activated. And I'm ex- be, besides the marketing tactics of email and flash sales 
and all of those things that do drive impulse. I'm interested to see how that how that works in the future. I think there's a lot of opportunity in that space. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think there's some interesting opportunities for impulse in the checkout flow and in the cart. And the challenge is, of course, when you talk to retailers about that, they're terrified to add any any additional friction to that checkout flow because they have a bunch of items in that cart already and they want to get conversion on those items. Often I'm talking to them about the analogies in their store and I'm, you don't seem very worried about adding friction to the checkout flow in the store when you add all those impulse items <laughs> at the checkout, but you do online at the moment. So we'll have to see how that all plays out. Yeah, I agree. Changing topics. I'm curious if you have a position on what the world's going to look like, who who the survivors are going to be in the next few years, right? Like, obviously, we've been talking about a bunch of traditional retailers that, you know, I'll call multi-brand retailers, guys that buy products from a bunch of different brands and sell them all. And obviously, Amazon is the biggest example of that on the web. There, frankly, aren't a lot of other examples that are surviving, right? And Jed is giving it a good college try right now. But there's a lot of people that feel like that's going to be close to a winner-take-all model, and there might only be one of those. So then you look at the other online models, and the one that seems like it's the most healthy is the one Andy Dunn talked about at, at Shop Talk last week, what he calls those digitally native vertical brands where they're both the product manufacturer and they primarily sell direct. They might also sell through wholesale, but they're sort of younger brands that are natively digital, know how to talk to the digital consumer, and they make their own stuff. His position would be, gosh, the traditional retailers that don't make their own stuff are going to be toast when digital uh, disruption is is all said and done. I'm curious, do you have an opinion on how that's all going to play out or who should we put our money on? I think they'll both succeed. I think that um, Amazon will continue to succeed. I don't think they're going anywhere. But there are also some really interesting players out there. Um, In one of your last, I don't remember exactly which episode it was, but one of your last podcasts, you guys were talking about how everyone's kind of rooting for Jet to succeed because it actually does a lot of good for the rest of the market. And I think that was a really interesting point that both of you made. Um, I think there's some innovators out there like Boxed who uh, are are attacking the space very differently from a business online club perspective and focusing on the larger pack sizes, a lot of small businesses. Um, I think they'll succeed or become ingrained like a Quidzy was with Amazon. But I also think that there are some brands like The Honest Company who started out as that direct-to-consumer vertical, and then ended up, as uh, Brian Lee stated, uh, expanding out to Target and to other retailers. Um, And I think that'll be interesting as well. So I think there's the space is really open. I think ultimately, for me, it goes back to the question of what is the consumer gaining from the experience, and how are you going to uh, communicate that experience to the consumer? Because when they're ingrained in a shopping behavior, for me, it's I, I will be totally transparent. I shop almost, at least non-grocery, I shop almost exclusively, exclusively at Amazon. Um, and so why would I change that behavior? I think that's the interesting question. And, and that's the question that someone has to answer is why would someone change the behavior? And if you can come up with a reasonable explanation, then you have a business model. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
really appreciate you doing this. And any last thoughts that you want to leave the listeners? We don't want to eat up too much of your time. I know that it's uh, it's been a long week, and want to make sure that you you uh, we we are respectful of your time. Any last thoughts for our listeners? No, I love your guys' show. I've been uh, over the past few weeks. I've been listening to all of all of the past podcasts. You guys have such a great show, so I'm I'm totally honored to be on it today. And I hope that some of the thoughts that I had were were nuggets that people will enjoy. I truly am passionate about the e-commerce space. I think there's so much to delve into uh, and, and so much innovation, and and that's why I'm passionate about it. And I hope that uh, that everyone can see not only my passion but both of your passion and become equally excited about what's going on here. Awesome. We really appreciate you doing it. And I know I learned a ton uh, from you both on the panel and on the show and really appreciate it. And I'm going to go order some uh, sample boxes for my (laughs) wife and be a hero this weekend. So uh, really appreciate that. Perfect. Yeah, Amanda, I I just want to echo Scott's sentiments. Thanks very much for your time and the fresh perspective. Uh, It's greatly appreciated. And to all our loyal listeners out there, I would just remind you, if you enjoyed the show, to rate it on iTunes and like our Facebook page. If you have any comments, you can certainly leave them there and continue the dialogue. And with that, I'd love to wish everyone a happy commercing. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review.